All right, today I'm on a, a Zoom call to Cam Berry. Uh, Cam, you're, you're a professional, well, tell me what you are. You've been a full-time trader since 2011. What, what do you actually specialise in now? Sure, so um, I specialise in focusing on horse racing trading predominantly. Uh, the horse racing market's pre-race before the event starts. Uh, there are various few other things I do. I've done different sport in the past. Football um, is interesting. Tennis has been also. Occasionally I'll go back and do a bit of tennis, maybe Wimbledon um, when it takes my fancy. But a lot of the time I have different techniques and edges that I've built up in maybe say horse racing that carries over to other situations. Because for me, sports trading is all about the marketplace, how the marketplace behaves, the people within it, rather than the actual sport, which you know traditionally a lot of the time is what people focus on when it comes to their, their sports betting. Yeah, I read. We'll talk about that in a bit. I just want to go back to your um, your career path. So you became a full-time trader via McDonald's, the Army, and BT. Now, were you interested in betting and anything while you were, while you were following those careers? <laughs> yeah, it's not the uh, traditional trajectory, I don't think, is it, into to full-time betting? Um, but no, is the answer to that. So uh, historically, I was probably more anti-betting. I didn't know a lot about it at all. Um, until sort of my early adult life. My, one of my very early memories was walking past a betting shop, I think maybe it was a Labrokes with my father, and probably was probably about four or five or something, early 90s. I remember walking past the doorway, had the chains hanging down, and in my, like my childlike memory, it, it felt like there was smoke billowing out the doorway. It probably wasn't quite so dramatic, but my father said to me, don't ever go in one of those places. So I never did. Um, and from that point onwards, um, I was never interested in betting. Um, even fruit machines with friends, arcades, that kind of stuff as a teenager. I always viewed it as quite a muggy thing to do. Um, thought, you know, you can't win. So I was never interested in it. I never pursued it. That all changed when I got a girlfriend and her grandfather encouraged me to go to the bookies on Boxing Day, um, where I become a little bit more interested. And then, of course, exchanges come up. Okay, so we're going to talk about that in a minute as well. But being an ex-army bloke myself, I'm interested to see that you... Uh... You completed P Company. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, you've got to be an officially hard warry bastard to complete P Company, which is a parachute regiment uh, thing. Uh, tell us a little bit, bit about your army career. Yeah, that seemed like a lifetime ago now, really. Um, but yeah, so started at McDonald's, uh, ended up in the army. I, to be honest, sort of 16, didn't finish my GCSEs, didn't have a lot of options, um, was a bit tight for, for a place to live for hey, army, all in one solution. So I joined the army, uh, done the aptitude tests, always wanted to be down the business end of things, um, join the infantry, paras, stuff like that. Uh, but they kind of encouraged me to go and do something a bit more technical. Uh, so I joined the, the signals. Um, and then once I actually went to unit, I went and done the para course you just mentioned there um, and supported two and three para in Colchester for coming up to around about eight years, I think it was before I left. So. Yeah, uh, that was a bit of an experience. Yeah, and you did two tours of duty, what, in Afghanistan? I did, yeah, that's correct. So I done uh, my first tour was six months long. My second tour was seven months long in total. Yeah, yeah. well, one of the things I read about you, uh, well, obviously you've written or you've sort of said, you had a bit of an epiphany moment in a trench with little Gaz, and you decided that you wanted to uh, do something with your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, quite a long time since I really sort of spoke about that I guess but um, it was a very big point, uh, turning point in my life um, obviously I was, I was quite young um, I was away on tour 
and the role that I was assigned to was a little bit of a specialist role um, supporting some mercenary contractors that had been hired by the government to burn the poppy fields so that it was seen as though you know the, these contractors were doing it rather than the army upsetting the locals so there was just a link with just a few of us and we provided the comms back to the, the, the military, if you, uh, military, if you like, from, from these, uh, these mercenaries. But the experience with them was seriously heavy duty, to be quite honest with you. Um, and I remember a point being stuck in a trench, being absolutely shelled for like, you know, eight, ten hours at a time. And I don't even smoke. And I was sat there with little Gaz that was with me. And I was like, look, give me a fag, will you? Um, and, and that was the point where I realised something here in my life has really got to change. Okay, now you've come out of the army. You've mentioned that uh, about 2006, 2007, you first went to a betting shop. You were always anti-bookmaker. Is that why sort of you said before that your father had always said no? You just always drilled into that betting shops where their losers go. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I guess one other thing that comes into it is I, I grew up in a, a seaside town, Clacton, so I'd often see a lot of people going to the arcades and amusements and, and burning money like that. So maybe that was slightly off-putting for me early on. But I think once um, I got you know, involved into or I come across horse racing as an adult and then particularly exchanges afterwards, I realised, hang on, there's actually a way to win here. And I was maybe interested in, in trading outside of exchanges before that, betting exchanges. So it just kind of gelled nicely. Um, and so it, things just flourished from there, really. I, th I didn't really know what I was doing for the first few years. Um, I wrote a blog online um, documenting some of my thoughts and experiences also. Um, but it was kind of like this new world that was just interesting where I thought, you know, hey, you can actually win here. Other people are actually winning. Um, and so I just thought that, you know, really, I wanted to pursue trading and follow their lead and uh, and have a go at it too, to be quite honest with you. So, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was that. Okay, now you say that you were blogging about what you'd learned before you actually went full time. Why have you always felt it necessary to share your knowledge? Okay, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I was I started blogging right from the start. Um, if you think back to sort of, I think it was around about 2009 when I first wrote a, a blog post. Um, but back then, social media wasn't as um, popular. It was still in its infancy. People weren't really using it. So that was one way to communicate with people online. But the biggest reason was to hold myself accountable. If you think about, you know, gambling, typically people that are gambling, it's one of those things that happens all the time where people don't hold themselves accountable, they remember their winners, they don't remember their losers. Um, and so I realized straight early on that I kind of needed some kind of feedback loop, a mechanism to hold myself accountable, I can go back and read the posts, other people can comment and stuff like that. So that's really why the blog started, yeah. Okay, so how soon after you started dabbling with trading did you start winning and did you have was there anybody that sort of marked your card or was it all self-taught? Sorry, I mean, marked your card as in, this is a good way of doing things, don't do this way, do it that way, rather than horses or anything. Sure, so um, I think it's fair to say there was certainly a few false summits on, on route where I thought I'd cracked it and I actually hadn't. So, you know, the whole two steps forward and, and one back sort of thing. Um, it was probably a good three, six months before... I started to find a little bit of consistency in what I was doing, finding the areas that I wanted to focus in um, and actually make a profit. But overall, it was probably around about a year before I started to make money on any kind of consistent basis. And that was only like, you know, two, three pound a race. 
not a lot of money, but I thought, hey, if I can crack the consistency on a low level, and then I can crank things up afterwards. So um, that that's how long it took me to sort of get going in terms of, of making profit. In terms of sort of mentorship, if you want to call it that, there was a few forums, like I said, there wasn't social media so much then, so I looked at a few software forums, but I'd say it was about a 90-10 split. 90% of the time was sort of trial and error and mistakes through through my own experiences and, and sort of trying to work out what's going on here. The other 10% being a few helpful people on, on forums um, early on. I think it was Gigi's was one of the very first forums I used, actually, uh, in terms of horse yeah. Um So I'm assuming then, you, when you were doing the evenings, you were still working for BT. Doing, so when you decided to take the plunge and go full time did it was it tricky mentally not that knowing that you didn't have the uh the, the wage yeah so i first come across trading when i was in the military um i never really got too well towards the end maybe i got a little bit heavier um interest in it there but um, so as you'll know yourself, leaving the military, you do resettlement package. Um, they put me on various courses to join um, and, and work for BT, which I did. But I kind of managed a little bit sneaky and I, and I pulled it so that um, I could be proactive, work out what was going to happen in my day ahead with BT, be up at the job, um, ready for it to come through on the PDA first thing. As soon as it comes through, get straight on the work, um, get it done as quickly as I possible can and then finish for like two, three in the afternoon. So I was actually getting home and then getting stuck into the race card or at least half of it, trying to make a bit of money like that. And I'd done that for about six months or so um, on, the, on the regs just to make sure that I, I built up some funds. Obviously, I, you know, I have no support systems, no family that helped me out. Um, but I didn't want to take risk. I wanted to make sure that there was that, that build up. But to be quite honest with you, yeah, it was extremely taxing um, mentally too. Certainly, it's a, it's a stressful thing to do. Did you manage to use your context to wangle yourself uh, super fast fiber optic back in the day? I did, yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> Good man. Um, so, so how often since you started trading a decade ago have you had to change your strategy? Well, I think th things are always evolving. Um, I think it's foolish to look at it as though things are not going to change. Um, I think people typically do that. So, a lot of the things that I do have evolved. Um, the core fundamentals underneath what I actually do haven't really evolved and that's because I've sort of specifically targeted things that are unlikely to change so for example um, human behavior um, fear stuff like that so that those things haven't changed um, but in terms of how I operate some things may have changed back to when I first started there was more focus on sort of prices from the courses uh, that was still a little bit of a thing and now it's more the other way around it's sort of exchanges first and you know, we, we see the exchanges go down on a Saturday afternoon and suddenly there's a whole load of bookmakers with huge um, spreads and that, and that could be because they, they're following Betfair, it could be. Okay, so how many, how many of the, the things that you were doing back at the very beginning are now actually worthless? Has anything sort of moved on that much that, you know, they, they can't win doing that anymore? Um, I don't think that there's anything in particular that doesn't work at all. Um, some things have become more profitable. Uh, some things I've, I mean, it depends where I've put my focus too. So, you know, some things become more profitable. There are others that are not as good as they once were. Primary thing to mention there would be like the TV delays. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but there was, there's an exchange shop in the, in the past. And I think overnight for a lot of people that used that, that were beating the TV feed delays and making a lot of money from the exchanges via betting on something a few seconds ahead of everyone. I think that was one that disappeared overnight very quickly. But that wasn't actually something I exploited myself. So 
um, yeah, that, that's uh, I think that, that answers that one. All right, Cam. Now, this is quite interesting being a trainer because Betfair actually contacted you to uh, to promote them, showing people how it should be done. As far as I know, unlike bookmakers, it wouldn't want anybody to show anybody how to win. So, how did the association with Betfair, apart from just using them as a platform, come about? Yeah, sure. So, um, Betfair contacted me back in two thousand and fourteen, I believe it was. Um, I was a bit surprised at the time myself, to be quite honest with you. Um, obviously, someone from Betfair who was looking to to boost their marketing of the exchange was looking about. Obviously, they could see my account, they could see what was going on there, probably seeing the blog as well. Um, and so they reached out, and said, you know, would you like to feature in this? Um, maybe I was a bit young and naive. I didn't get paid. But uh, yeah, they featured me on their, their market material as a, a consistent winner, um, and that was that. Okay, now, I've interviewed quite a few professional gamblers, more traditional professional gamblers, on, on the, the Betting People series, um, because people like aspiration. They like to see that it is possible. In reality, a lot of these people are extremely talented, and, you know, most people probably can't emulate their success. Is trading something that a lot more people can, if they work at it, win at? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm going to say say yes to that because I am I am proof that that's possible. I don't consider myself to be any kind of sort of Stephen Hawkins type. Uh, obviously, started at McDonald's, went into the army ended up betting for, for a living full time. So it's certainly possible, something that people can emulate. Although at the same time, I think, to be completely honest with you and, and Frank as well, it is a zero-sum game, as is betting. So there's always going to be more losers than there is winners. Um, there'll be some nice success stories amongst that. But what I'm trying to say, I think, is that that, that split and that divide between winners and losers will always be there. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But you certainly don't need some kind of crazy degree from Cambridge or something like that in order to... Yeah. They, they do your level best to ensure people do get the, the knowledge to win because you're very prolific these days on YouTube. You're making very high quality videos to explaining to people, you know, how it's done or the theory behind how it's done. Is, is that um, a sort of another string to your bow as far as income is concerned? Because they're free to view on YouTube. Yeah, sure. So um, you, you already previously mentioned the blog. Um, I never intended it to be like that, but when I started out initially, obviously there was the blog. It, it gathered a little bit of a following. YouTube become part of that. It's obviously an easy way to sort of express and share information from, from your screen. So that's how YouTube started. It is an additional income stream. It's really not what people expect it to be, to be honest. I do it because I enjoy it also at the end of the day. But... Um, yeah, I, I don't see any reason why, why you know I shouldn't share some things that are useful. It helps me diversify in terms of income streams, gives me a taxable income as well, which is something that people don't often think about when uh, people are betting for a living. And also it helps me fill those gaps throughout the day uh, in terms of the morning and afternoon because shortly after going full-time, I realised that, like, you know, what, what you're going to sit around with your your thumb up your jacksy sort of until uh, 12 o'clock when the racing starts um, and then just work a few hours a day. So yeah, that's, that's, that's where the YouTube come from. Plus of course it helps with the premium charge. So um, for people that aren't aware, long-term long winners on Betfair that are successful do have to pay an additional charge. 
to the house to Betfair for the uh, the benefit of doing that. So it helps give me multiple income streams, um, taxable income, and yeah. And uh, another uh, thing that's uh, come about recently, well, I think recently, uh, matched betting. Now I was amazed. I wrote a blog about it for Star Sports a while back. My even my little eighteen-year-old niece is into matched betting to help fund her uh, university. Now, is that some, something that you've touched on? Do you actually do it yourself? No, no, I've, I've never done match betting myself, um, excluding maybe if it was to go back many years, I thought it was a, a relatively obvious thing to do to kind of like, you know, t- take a free, uh, take the, the opening offer and lay it off in the exchange so there's no risk um, and then sort of milk the bonus. But that, what you said there about your niece, that's a, a popular thing for people to do now going to university. I guess you're asking because I own half of Profit Rush. Um, which is a free match betting service. Um, it has similarities to trading, so some people like to use it as a stepping stone to come into the world of trading. Obviously, you've got your backs, your lays, hedging, and all that kind of stuff, which is very similar. Although, I should say, they are not the same also. It's just kind of like a, a low-risk side income thing, which has become very popular amongst the masses. Okay, what was that uh, website? Yeah, it's profitrush.com. Okay, lovely. Um, now, you also, you're very... You are very productive. You've written an Amazon book that you sell on Amazon. Yeah. That fair trading made simple. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. So is that, that's... Um, yeah, that, that's just the start, know, that... of, it's a start of guide for anybody who kind of comes in, comes across trading, doesn't understand the basics, good starting reference, shows you some of the problems that you're going to have early on, the basics, the kind of like the anatomy of the trade. Obviously, I've had like 10 years of, of spare time ever side there to compile some of these things. I don't like to sit around too much anyway. So um, aside from sitting in the sun, having a beer. Okay, so but you say that, but there's a lot of sport on. Uh, there's a lot of racing. There's, you know, you can pretty much 24-hour sport if you wanted to do it. So how many hours a day would you spend in front of the computer actively trading? Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And I mean, it, it depends on what I'm targeting. But um, I mean, the, the main focus and always has been from the start is horse racing. So if you think horse racing card this time of year, racing is usually on sort of 12 till 5, the winter is 2 till 5. So I'm only trading for actually four or five hours a day when I'm when I'm actually actively trading in the market. So it does give me time either side. And obviously over that 10 year period, that's been a significant amount of time to, to build these extra um, income streams, just like we're talking now, really. I suppose before uh, before the racing starts today. Okay, so apart from the, the premium charge, of course, which is uh, high, do, do you use do you sort of get involved with arbitrage? Do you use traditional bookmakers' accounts at all? So you get restricted. <laughs> I am restricted um, just about everywhere. You may have seen, and lots of people have, there's, there's several videos on my YouTube channel about that because I find it quite frustrating that they, they behave in, in the way they do. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all the same thing. Whether you're arbing or betting at value or finding a good price, they're going to treat you the same way. Whether you're beating the price there and then and it's an open arb, or if you're back in in the morning and then the price, you know, halves by the afternoon and the race goes off, they're treating people in the same way and restricting accounts. So um, I, I don't arb, I don't do that because it wouldn't really be worth the time for me but i you know i have better value. of course i've been being the word that the bookmakers like to use for people that are just trying to get the best price of course yeah yeah of um. course. 
on the on the other side of that, I think, um, and and things like uh, price yeah. abuse and stuff like that. But I think now with the affordability checks and that, it's fair to say that the uh, the other side of the fence yeah. is abusing uh, affordability checks and stuff too. Okay, now a lot of your um, a lot of your videos, you know, there's, you're coming up with new stuff, new ways to win all the time. That how, I mean, how much research do you have to put in? How many things do you try that fall flat on their face? before you find another strategy? Yeah, well, you have to evolve and develop. Um, and it's probably the less glamorous truth. And I'm glad you've asked that because I don't talk about it so much anymore because people just generally don't seem interested in hearing about it. But I've spent countless hours um, analyzing various characteristics, limitations of marketplaces um, and, and failed on paper with certain lines of thinking, trying to prove or disprove certain things. Um, so, you know, I've, I've failed a lot, but I don't believe in failing with my own money is one thing that I would like to say, because I, I like to try and prove, disprove and understand why something works first. Okay, now, um, I'm assuming that, you get, you know, you get a few quid off of your new strategies before you decide to, to share them on YouTube. We're still trying to work out why, why you still want to share them. Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> um, I mean... There's there's certain things I, I certainly haven't shared everything on YouTube. Some people um, expect you to. Other people don't ask questions like you are and say so, so why would you do that? But I think maybe you're referring to one video in particular there, very popular one the last month or two ago, um, where I shared a strategy which will openly help you beat a bookmaker quite easily, and it works. And I've made a very significant amount of money from it over a period of time, either side of the race cards in doing that. Um, so I just thought, well, look, I'm restricted on just about every bookie that I've ever opened an account with, and there's a handful that I haven't. But if I'm restricted with them, I'm fully aware that they're clamping down on people that take value. They're going to try and block this out in the future and stop people from doing this. I've, I've milked it fully, pretty much. So why not share that online? Oh, yes, I'll get a tiny amount of ad revenue. It's really not worth the time, to be honest. Probably about worth about half a day's work. But at the same time, if I can help people and people that follow me and be genuine and honest in doing that in the process, then why the hell not? I just see that as a good thing to do. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that, I hope that answers that fully. All right, Cam, now, you've you found a lot of ways to win at a lot of different sports. And I'm just wondering why you don't stick to one thing and become more and more and more professional. I mean, you talk about football, cricket, tennis, um, you know, why would you sort of go into something that you don't know much about initially rather than just stick with what you know? Okay, uh, that's a fair question. So I still obviously focus on horse racing, it's the main focus. Um, but, you know, over a period of time, they reached a point where I felt I was kind of like hitting a bit of a ceiling in terms of what I was doing, trading pre-race. Uh, obviously on the exchanges, as great as they are, there is limited liquidity in certain situations. Um, you get obviously different types of situations, but so for an example, if you were to take like Dundalk on a Friday evening, obviously not many people are interested on in that, so there'll be low liquidity, so it's hard to scale up and get those larger profits out in comparison to something like Ascot. But I guess what I'm really trying to say here is, you know, I felt as I'd reached that threshold a little bit where if I just pushed harder, I would probably be increasing my risk. Um, and that's not something I'm interested in. I'm very risk averse. So I thought, you know, let's carry it over to multiple sports because also it's not just a case of not understanding and starting out, starting out again. Um, I'm not actually starting out again. 
just carrying over things I've learned into different situations. So for example, horse racing, great example, obviously Curly, uh, Barney Curley passed away last week. Um, there was a lot of fear associated with his horses and the prices in the marketplaces, which would then create over and under reactions. But you could take that kind of line of thinking and carry it over to tennis also, where you might have something like you know, a young tennis player, female, first game, second set, um, and and so the marketplace is at the end of its extremity in terms of characteristics, but there's still fear attached to you know her emotional behaviour and also the marketplace too. So, yeah. Okay, now a lot of people don't want to talk about, but what sort of volumes are we talking about that you need to wager in to make it pay? Yeah, sure. Um, there's no problems with that. So. It depends on the situation because they're very different. Obviously, trading pre-match football match is very different to like an in-play tennis match. But if you're trading, say, pre-match football, then there's some videos on YouTube um, showing this. But you need to sort of stake around about thousand pounds up to ten, fifteen thousand to get a nice size return. And I might only be trying to steal five, ten ticks before the start of a game. Um, if we were to move that over to horse racing, minimum stakes usually fifty quid, just testing the water. Uh, up to 200 routinely, uh, all the way up to sort of 2,000 pre-race. Now, the difference with that is in a pre-race horse racing market, 90% of the volume's turned over in the last five minutes. So I will continually turn over those 50s, 200s, 500s, again and again, nicking fivers and tenors here and there. One thing to point uh, to, to mention, I guess, because not all viewers will understand this at this point, but when I say put 10 grand on or 200 grand on, I'm not talking about risking all of that money and having a bet. I'm talking about um, the difference between the tick increments um, in terms of pricing. So I might only lose plus or, 10, plus or minus 10 quid um, and routinely turn that over in the live show. And I wouldn't actually be risking the, the full 200 or 500 because I'm not going to go in play at all. So I'm talking about pre-race there. So that gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of staking volumes that I typically use depending on um, the situation. But really, it depends on how much opportunity there is. Yep. Uh, now, is it possible for you to be aware that there are like other professionals betting on that market? Can you sort of see the sharp, the sharp money? So what do you do? Do you, do you think, right, I'll give this a swerve, there's always another one, or you know, how does that affect well, yeah, and I mean, there's a great point in that as well. And we can't see, okay, it's harder to see the sharp money. It's easier to see the sort of more vulnerable panic money in the marketplace, yeah? So there's situations, I'll leave it alone if I don't think there's an opportunity, certainly. Um, and it's far easier to see the panic that comes in or maybe like VIP customers. Routinely in the past, I've seen people put 50 grand on a horse, let's say two to one, and then drag it down and down and down and down in the space of a minute to six to four. That's just a complete idiot thing to do. So that's obviously and quite clearly a foolish bet um, of a large stake, which affects the marketplace temporarily. Um, but you know your pro punters like your Barney Curleys and people like that, they're not idiots. They know that they need to filter their stakes on, put them on late when there's maximum um, liquidity, rather than just dragging it down like that. So it's easy to identify those type of situations which you can exploit. Um, but you know if that isn't the case and you feel as though the market is quite sharp, then something that I often say to people when I've been helping them out is it's just as important what you don't do as what you do do. Okay, so you need to have that that discipline of focus on risk management and not making them mistakes. Okay, now. I've heard say people that play poker online sort of seriously 
that the best times were sort of any time after 11 o'clock when the pubs have shut and you get the people come home and have a go and that'd be easy pickings are the days special times of the day or certain days where you're going to find easier money which would you sort of make sure you're on yeah it's, it's a bit harder to categorize it in terms of days although if you press me on that one i'd probably say sort of like you know you're all weather race cars in the racing or on a sunday afternoon maybe um but it's more a case of focusing on situations where there's a lot of unknowns associated to the situation okay so that's where you normally get those type of instances where it can be easier and they're more volatile um, so for example if you think of horse racing maidens typically or a horse that like you know a horse that hasn't run for 500 days typically like a curly type incidence is is very obvious and it happens on a, a micro level lots um, on a regular basis so you want to focus on situations where there's less information alternately on situations where there's a lot of information okay there might be an inside gamble going to some degree or another but the price can't be far wrong from from where it probably should be. okay and then there's something I've, i enjoyed in your book i enjoyed a lot of your book but this um you said i'd like to thank all the people that laughed in my face when i started now where where, where are they now do you ever see any of these people that laughed in your face are they uh uh, no, <laughs> no, I don't bother with them anymore. Um, and that was a very sad point for me on my journey, if I'm honest with you, Simon, um, because it seems that people want you to fail and when you succeed, uh, they don't like it even more. And, that, and that's quite hard hitting when it's people quite close to you. A lot of people didn't believe in what I was doing quite early on. And so I really had to push back against them for that. And, and I guess that's probably something a lot of people would experience. Now, you've been trading for a living for what, a decade now. Uh, I'm not sure how old you are, but as a relatively young man, is this something that you think can be sustainable for, for you know, your foreseeable? Um, well, fortunately, I've got myself in a situation where it really doesn't matter to me if it, if it disappeared tomorrow. Um, but who knows? I guess... The, there's been lots of, lots of points in the past where people have gone, oh, it's the end of it. You know, I remember when the premium charge and the second premium charge come out, people were like, right, it's game over, that's it. There's been that's happened so many times, and then it's carried on. So I'd like to think not. Although at the end of the day, quite honestly, I can't really answer that one. I don't know. I hope it does carry on. I won't want to be here when I'm sort of 50, 50 plus. In fact, I certainly won't be. But. Um, it's a, it's a threat that's always there, but at the end of the day, if, if you want to you want to have the upside, you've got to take part and take that risk. I guess um, it's something that I've I've worried about before in the past. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of talk about the uh, the sort of liquidity in the exchanges. You know, you've talked about the sort of money you have to have on a football match. Now, is that is um, educating people sort of a, a good way of so of so perpetuating there being a few quid in the market. I mean, are you worried about the liquidity, first of all? Uh, Do you mean to attract liquidity? Well, you know, I mean, as, I'm sure that's not what you're doing to intentionally when you do the videos, but as a byproduct of it, getting people in there having a go can't be a bad thing to keep, you know, for keeping liquidity up. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly not like the, the, the reason that I've done it. Uh, and I think in terms of, you know, my website and YouTube and stuff, I'm a very small cog in, in the big machine. Um, but I go, I guess that could be positive. Uh, I guess over the last 10 years or so, it's, it's no secret, horse racing liquidity has gone down a little. 
um, on the exchanges, which was a bit of a shame. It's probably mainly due to, to Betfair promoting the sports book more. Um, but I think personally, and maybe this is me being optimistic, but over a period of time, I think maybe people, or I hope people will come back to exchanges because bookmakers really are painting themselves into a corner a bit with all these restrictions. You've got the negative stuff in the press about affordability stuff going on. Um, but once it becomes common knowledge that you can't get a bet on with a bookmaker, then I think ultimately people have to come back to exchanges, don't they? I hope they do anyway. Yeah. Now, city traders, we're, we're told, generally burn out at a very young age. Does that sort of same fate await you if you're not careful? Or any any serious trader on, on uh, sports betting? Um. I guess it's a it's a real a real threat. Um, it's supposedly a thing, and and I can tell you from personal experience, looking at flashy numbers all day long, isn't great for you at all. Um, the winning can become addictive, and very early on, I I found it hard to peel myself away from um, trading at times, which is not that healthy. It's, it's different now. I'm only thirty five at the moment, so uh, hopefully there's plenty of life left in me as yet. Um, and I hope not, but again, it's another one of those that's probably quite open-ended and I couldn't tell you um, definitively, but you certainly should focus on managing your time and your own personal sort of mental health when, when doing it full-time. Right, Cal, I've read, I was trying to find it, a, a fantastic quote, um, if, if you, I don't know if you can remember it, about um, people that have learned and stopped learning and people that continue to learn. Can you remember what it was? Because I can't find it anyway. Yes, that would be the Eric Hoffer quote. It's one of my favourites. Um, in times of change, the learners inherit the earth, whereas the learned become beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. And that's um, obviously you are always striving to keep learning because you, you're finding these different edges and you know trying and failing, um, and then you know finding the successful ones. Um, is there a basic? A very, very, I know you've written it all about it, but for people watching this, an absolute basic that every aspiring trader needs to learn to start them off fundamentals. Sure. Um, so that developing and evolving that you're kind of hinting at with that quote there is extremely important. Um, you need to, to be aware that you're going to have to do that going into the future, but it's really important that you actually understand the characteristics for each situation because that will help massively. Um, the the fuller you understand the characteristics of the situation, and I mean in terms of betting as well as also the sport, but more so the betting market, um, the easier it becomes because you need to understand where the limitations are, those boundaries. Um, the likely characteristics in certain situations so that you can manage a situation whereas there's more reward on off than risk ultimately um, and that includes behaviors that are associated with the marketplace also and the people operating within them um, so a good example would be in horse racing the media often talks exclusively about the horses or the jockeys or you know recent runs and stuff like that but Really, I would look at it from a different angle altogether. I'd still be looking at it, but I'd look at it in a sense of, you know, is it a handicap? Uh, when was its last run? Has it been an extended break? Um, was it weighted a, a bad mark? Okay, so that's interesting. So you say, you say in, uh, in your book that it's about figures and it's about uh, 
prices, but you still do your your homework as informed study. Well, n- not really. I, I, okay, I guess you could call it form study and sense, but looking at things from a different angle. Okay, so prime example, obviously, um, Curly passed away last week. If he had a horse in a race that hasn't run for 500 days, I know that the price is either going to go up massively when there's no money back in it, or it's going to go in massively when there is money back in it. So I'm looking in the non-traditional sense of, you know, what is what is the key indicator that that might happen? And that might be a situation, obviously, there's it happens in lots of different uh, situations. But you need to understand the angle that you're looking at it from and then work backwards. So a popular way is... Uh, the newbies start out with, with trading is back into lay at the start of a race based on the horse's routine behaviour and characteristics. So you have some horses maybe on a national hunt, you'll see them lining up, they're dying to go, they bounce out straight away and you can nab a few ticks early on. So, yeah. Okay, now anyone that follows any whatever way they do it of, um, of being a professional gambler, for want of a better word, Put themselves under massive pressure. I know you say that you're comfortable now, so it wouldn't be the end of the world if you had to stop doing it. But um, how do you cope, especially in your earlier days, when I assume you didn't have such a tank behind you, with that massive pressure? And do you find even now that mental health can be an issue if you're having a terrible bad run or things aren't going right? How do you cope with that? Yeah, so, okay, so there's a lot to that. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to remember, no matter who you are, whether it's, you know, me or some other professional or somebody off the street, we're all human. So we're all aware and susceptible to that kind of stuff. But, and it's something that I blogged about a lot early on, but the more self-aware you are, the easier it becomes to, to, to manage those issues that you're talking about there. And I think over a period of time, more experience in the markets, um, taking risk, it becomes slightly easier. That's one of those things that you can't learn from from reading, unfortunately. Um, and there has been pressure, and it has been hard at points for me. Maybe I've taken it out on people around me at times when I shouldn't have. Um, I'm fully aware of that. But I think really it's just kind of getting yourself set up as best you can so that um, you are affected less and less by those situations. And not. Do take- you think that... Um- being at the bottom of a trench with people shooting at you has put things in perspective to help you in that. In that. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, but but not to have yourself in a situation where you take too much risk. Now, um, one thing I actually remember from, from last week, having seen uh, the, the passing of Barnick early, was that it wasn't really covered much in the press, but he had tuberculosis when he was a teenager. That stood out to me because I thought... Yeah, I can understand more behind who he was and, and maybe some of his behaviours because he'd been to rock bottom. He'd already, you know, he'd hit the bottom and in his lowest low. So a lot of the time, taking risk later on in his life was probably less of an issue and he probably cared less about it. Um, so, yeah, that's probably my angle on, on that one there. Okay, so how you're, you're, you're working, I assume you work from home and you're, you know, you, how do you sort of manage, how do you manage your time? Okay, so I've had several different offices in the past. Um, obviously, with the, the current situation, I've now built one down the end of the garden. So, so that's where I am right now. But um, having that separation is important. Obviously, if you're spending 800 quid a month on, on office rent, it, it gets a little bit more pricey and stuff. But it is important that you have some kind of separation from 
the rest of the world. I remember those days where, you know, young kids knocking on the door, um, dog running in around your feet, stuff like that. It's just not what you need when you're trying to manage risk and you're playing with money, particularly with high stakes. So I feel you. I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> excluding the situation where the missus comes in in her underwear, obviously. But um, yeah, I think it's really important that you have that separation. You manage that that environment so it's as comfortable and easy for you to not get yourself on that slippery slope and treat it like a job, really. I mean, none of us want a job. That's not why we come into betting. We want the easy money fast. Completely get that. But the easier um, it becomes easier, the more you set yourself up for the success, if that makes sense. Uh, um, I used to work for race with bookmakers and there'd be times it was a pouring down the rain on a, on a useless Tuesday and there'd be bookmakers turning up to betting pitches that were obviously going to be no good whatsoever. I mean, and the, my boss used to say, oh, they're addicted. They can't leave it alone just in case there's a load of results and things. I mean, how important is it to take total time out? Do you take total time out, you know, and just forget it all for a period of time? So I do have time out. Um, I struggle to switch off as a person, if I'm honest. Um, so I like a holiday. I do get breaks away. If you've seen the blog, I have quite a lot of holidays. But, you know, whether I'm laying on sun lounger in Greece or somewhere else, I'm still usually thinking my mind's ticking over. I do find it hard to switch off. So factoring them in is kind of important, but ultimately it depends on the type of person you are. But I guess that sort of is part of the reason that, that I've succeeded. Um, you need to have a break from it because you'll just drive yourself nuts otherwise. Um, but I think, and this sounds cliche again, but the more you enjoy it, the easier it becomes and the less stressful it is. And so, you know, it's less of an issue, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Is that um, laying on a sun lounger and not being able to switch off something that you wish you could change? At points, yeah. Yeah, I think at points it's been um, a little bit tricky to manage and borderline obsessive. Um, it's probably a bit different to your, your race course situation. Uh, the year of missing out, that was called. They were worried they were going to get six big price winners and they but they didn't get anything, but they wouldn't have got anything much anyway. But that was the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that sounds more like borderline addiction, if I'm honest. Um, and they're sort of aiming for the short term there. But I've had situations where it's like, look, oh, I'll just nip into the, the office because I can trade two more races and get an extra 50 quid, 60 quid, nice and easy. Um, and I can't leave yeah. it alone. So that is not healthy, obviously. Um, if you do it too much, you can lose friends and, and other stuff around. I mean, that does, it does sound like a problem everybody would like to have, where most people lose that. You get that good, you think, I can just go and nick another 50 quid. I mean, that must be, when, you've, when you get to that position, that must be a very hard thing to try and resist. Wake up in the night and go and nick 50 quid off of uh, Australian racing or something like that. I mean, you, you know, is that a thing, really, that you've got, you've got to stop yourself doing that? Yeah, and, uh, and I've done it in the past. It can be really unhealthy, you know, like situations you're like, my God, I can't have a Saturday off. Um, and I remember talking to, to Steve Howe, another pro trader that was promoted by Betfair in, in 2014. And it's like, it's not worth missing out on certain events in life for the sake of an extra 50, 60 quid. Now, I know if you want, you need the money, you might feel a little bit different about that. 
but it's about balance really I mean wasting opportunity is one thing if you know that there's going to be a race it's going to take 10 minutes and you're going to get 200 quid easy you should be doing that but then on the other side there's no point being too obsessive about it either because really it's a negative thing overall which just... Okay, right. Coming to this is where people want to get to that position you've just talked about. There's the people that are watching this want to be able to emulate Canberry and go and nick 50 quid whenever they feel like it. Um, three things to finish with. The biggest pitfall people need to avoid. The biggest pitfall. There's so many things I could say. Um, emotion. Emotion has to be the biggest it's the biggest problem for each and every one of us that, that trade, whether you're new, starting out, you're full-time, you've been doing it for years, it still affects you um, and it can catch you out. So you don't want to end up in a situation where you end up like going on the chase or you feel like you've missed out on something, so you do something irrational. You want to be uh, completely rational, calm, devoid of emotion as much as possible and, and structure the situation so that that is the case and, and life is easier. Okay, and what, what, what? Somebody that wants to start to gain confidence and experience, which would be the best market to to start trying to trade in? That that's a common question, um, and it's not the easiest one to answer because I mean they they've all just got different pros and cons. So I would say pick a market that you certainly enjoy, no question. If you don't enjoy it, you won't do it enough. Stick to one marketplace if you can and one situation within that marketplace. So you've got like a solid environment to either fail or, or succeed in, yeah? But it's not a moving variable environment. So a primary example of that in horse racing trading, somebody might say, oh, I'm gonna trade five races because I trade horse racing, which is true, but you might have a maiden followed by a novice followed by a group three followed by a handicap. They're all different environments, okay? You need to focus on one of those individually, drill down and then um, prove or disprove what you're doing and, and ultimately make it work or fail. Okay, and finally, one piece of advice that you wish you'd been given before you sat down to ever play on these uh, things, but wasn't. Uh, in terms of training itself or? At any aspect of your of what you do now that if you could have been told at the, before you sit down can in front of that computer this is your bit of advice that would have saved you a lot of pain or losses or sleepless nights anything that you wish you could you could impart to people that you wish you'd known but didn't at the start I think really it probably boils down to a mixture of the last two answers, but probably more the second one about focus. You've got you've got to focus, like like completely pinpoint what you're doing, stay with it because it's too easy to to jump around, try something new, try a different. Um, and it's fine for me to say this, having traded multiple sports, different environments, but become a master in one of them first before you carry it over. Don't jump around, give yourself a reliable, structured environment to operate in so that you actually know whether you're going forward or backwards and it's really quite crystal clear, whether you're recording on the spreadsheet or in your profit and loss or whatever it may be. But it's probably the worst thing in the world and I spent a fair bit of time doing that um, early on, jumping around from one thing to another, trying to find the next hot thing um, and ultimately you get nowhere in the end. So focus on one thing, stick with it, become a master of it, 
um, and don't leave it alone until you do. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that. Any, anyone that's had their appetite whetted by this, what's the name of your, is it just Cam Berry, your channel on YouTube? Uh, yes, Cam Berry Pro Trader. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for your time, uh, Cam Berry. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Star Sports are the proud sponsors of the English Greyhound Derby, all part of our commitment to the sport from the home of Greyhound Racing Betting. BeGambleAware.org over 18 only.